You're listening to Perspectives in Parryville. I'm particularly excited because this is a milestone episode, number 50. We're the slightly longer duration because it features two guests, both with interesting interwoven personal insights and stories to share. So today, my guests are Effie Alexakis, a documentary photographer, and Leonard Yanishevsky, a socio-cultural historian. In this episode, we find out about Effie and Leonard's collaborations in researching the Greek-Australian historical and contemporary presence in both Australia and internationally. Effie and Leonard recount how they have taken their camera and tape recorder, paper and pen, to respectfully and honestly capture the human faces and authentic personal stories that gave Australian popular culture some memorable expressions. We learn about cultural developments as diverse as transforming American soda fountains into local Australian cafes and milk bars, through to connections with Indigenous Australians, resulting in barramundi being introduced onto the menu for the 1956 Melbourne Olympic Games. We explore the often complex social interrelationships that might be found just beneath the surface of such stories then chat further about the significance, value and associated archival complexities of socio-cultural documentation. Effie and Leonard reflect on the significance of recording a diversity of opinions and experiences that capture ideas and wonder, music and architecture, society and history, food, fantasy and culture, memory and identity life itself really, as past, present and future. Here's my conversation with Effie Alexakis and Leonard Yanishevsky. Very nice to see you, uh, Effie. Oh, we have met several times over many, many years. I'm, I think I might have met you at some point, Leonard. Because I have been uh, around Macquarie for a while, but maybe not. Totally possible, yeah. So we, I want to find out more about each of you, and I'm going to put you on the clock, but I don't have... Oh, I've got my watch. Um, what... Um, I want to find out, like, we're surrounded by all these really nice photos, mainly photos. Um, were you interested... Did you? When did you first pick up the camera, maybe? Well, I've always been interested in, a photogra- in photography. In fact, there's um, an early photo of me with my father when I was about three with a box brownie over my shoulder, which I was really surprised um, that we even had one in the family. Um, so I was always interested in photography and I trained to be an art teacher and photography was always a, c- a component of that. So um, in the 80s, after I did my teacher training, I did a postgrad diploma in photography and then that's when I um, started at Macquarie University as a photographer in 1983 and I've been there ever since. Like, did, you, did you do much teaching with your... I taught for a year and a half okay, but that's I, not te- teaching wasn't for me <laughs> in a high school um, but I did teach photography after I uh, qualified and and got more f- um, photographic um, 
background. So teaching photography is fine, but teaching at a high school, art, was not really for me mm. at that time. So then you obviously picked up this, um, well, this other skill of photography and decided to focus on it pretty much straight away by the sounds of it. Well, straight away. I finished, um, as I said, the uh, Bachelor of Arts where I concentrated on art, archaeology. Uh, then I did a diploma in education where I met Leonard. So we've known each other since 1980. 1980, 1980. 1980. Um, and then I went overseas, photographed a lot in um, where my family came from in Greece. And what so sort of things did you photo photograph? My, I was lucky, my parents are both from the same village. So everyone in the village was related to me in some sort of way. I like old people, so I, I would go to the different houses, photograph the old people, learn things like crocheting. We were talking earlier mm. that you like um, sewing. sewing. <laughs> so I loved crocheting, so um, I would meet little old ladies and learn different patterns. I would photograph them. I'd go to the cemetery. I was interested in, in, in just life and death situations in Greece. And, you know, it's a more honest um way of life with which I really enjoyed and um, to be privileged enough to be allowed to photograph them was fantastic and at that time it was black and white photography so I would take a tripod I would take the film and I would spend the day wandering about the other village and the houses were very traditional so there was lots and lots of things to photograph and it really interested me and it became a lifelong um, obsession I think visiting Greece and photography and, and what happened to those photos like were they put into an exhibition or something like that well I've been exhibiting from early on and that was a way of um, well the thing I'll, I'll go back in 1983 my father had a, a fatal heart attack and it sort of put into perspective uh, what was I going to do was did I want to spend my life being a teacher in a high school and I think the fact that our family situation changed so dramatically, made me want to document that. So I started photographing more so after he passed away because it, it was a huge loss to all our family because when my father came out, he was responsible for bringing, bringing out his younger siblings to the extent that most of them came here and there was only two remaining in Greece. And did they pretty much come out to like Sydney, Sydney area or...? S all our family's Sydney-based, um, even on, on the, my mother's side. So um, although a lot of hers went to America, a lot of her family, I actually have a lot of first cousins that I haven't met. They're all in the US and in Canada. So, you know, huge extended family. So having someone pass away so close to you made family even more special. And so I wanted to document that. Because our, our life changed after our father left. I was 25 and I had three other siblings all much younger than me. Or not much younger, one sister one year younger, six years younger, and my brother was only 14, I think, at the time. So, so, so then when you started at Macquarie, um, what sort of things did they well, ask I, you to photograph? I was lucky because uh, I started the same year that um, my father died. So I've been at Macquarie since 83. Uh, there was a well-established photography department, so um, it was, um, I learnt a lot. What does that mean, a well-established photographic we did, department? We, we did black and white printing and processing, we did colour printing and processing, we did photography on site with 
a range of cameras from 35mm up to 4x5, you know, the big view cameras where you put your head under a, um, a black cloth, you know, the plate films. So it was a great learning experience. That's probably why I, 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 I still work at Macquarie because um, it was a great environment, especially back then because you had senior photographers that... Uh, encouraged you, supported you. There was also a lot of academics at the time on uh, on staff that um, once I started documenting my family and other Greek Australians that were very encouraging. People like Professor Peter Spirit, professor, people like Jill Rowe, George Parsons. Um, so I felt that they were helping this young person out with their knowledge. So it was just um, just a... And also being in a university environment encourages you to do projects just like everyone else is. Even though you're not on the academic staff, I had access to the dark rooms, I had access to all the cameras. Um, so what did you do? Well, I went crazy. <laughs> <laughs> well. No, I, I just spent... I, I had met Leonard, so to get, he was at that time studying Australian history and he told me for his thesis that he had all these amazing Greek names that he found that had come out during the Australian gold rush period in the 1850s and I had not known much of this and it hadn't been published it was all new the fact that there were Greek people coming out for so many uh, generations prior to my post-war experiences so we got together and decided to do a project together which we called right at the very beginning in their own image, Greek Australians. The the story was we'd go interview interesting people, document their story, photograph them, and put together a, an archive, a collection, which we did. Our first exhibition, I think, landed was in, I think, um, fairly early on. 1987, I think. 1987. Uh, so exhibitions was what we started doing to get our work out there. And we've always been supported by the Greek community. Those early years too, we were very successful in getting Australia Council grants to do projects. So everything was going really well for us at the start when we were starting out. And um, I guess then, how, for how long did that continue for, like in terms of projects? Because, you know, as we were talking earlier, Things don't stay the same. There's always constant change, but... Well, we're still working on projects. That theme is so all-encompassing. We're still documenting people of Greek background, only because I think there's still so much to do, and we actually, um, we love doing it. Yeah, in a way, it just reminded me of um, of what you'd said you were doing in Greece. There's a person, there's mm-hmm. their crocheting or whatever. It's, it's documenting somebody's life. Um and so I guess somewhere along that time, there must have been a transition to digital. And what happened there? Well, I wish digital had happened early on because it's so much harder um, processing film, uh, going to Greece, for example, or even around Australia. We, we travelled, we've done two huge field trips where you'd shoot the thing, you shoot your film, you label it, but you weren't going to see it for another six weeks or two months Could you after. talk us through, um, I know with some... Um, film students that I'm involved with, the, this resurgence of film cameras. They're really, because they haven't grown up with it, they've only ever known digital. Can you just 
talk us through briefly what's, what's involved? Well, it's a, it's a huge a technical commitment, really. So you have to know how to use the camera. You have to know how to develop film. You have to know how to put the film in the camera because it's not... Um, I'm not the only one that's actually shot through a whole roll of film and then realised the film wasn't winding and I've got nothing there. So it, it technically, it can, it, it's challenging. But, um, yeah, so you process your film. Back then, to film, you don't, it's expensive. You don't have a million rolls of film like with digital. You just charge up your, you know, uh, a little, um, your USB and, you know, you've, 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 you take unlimited amounts of film, of images, but with film, you're limited by how many rolls of film you have. So you, on a long field trip, you say, okay, oh, we're doing 10 families. I've got so many shots here, so many shots there. So, hey, so you have to know your stock. Um, what stock? How many film rolls you've got with you and whether there'll be camera shops along the way, whether you can buy more film. Overseas it was challenging often too because the film would be, um, would be x-rayed and everyone knows that fi uh, film is very f um, light sensitive. And so I would always have arguments at the airport because I didn't want the film to go through the x-ray machines. And they all always obviously say, oh, it's film safe, it's film safe. No, it isn't because I used to use a medium format camera, which isn't in the little metal cassettes. It's, on, it's got a paper backing. So if you're going to put transmit light through that, it sometimes shows the texture of the paper through onto the film. And I've actually got rolls of film where you've got a little texture all the way through it. So films, um, X-ray machines are not uh, completely film safe. So you, you get back, you process all your film using um, chemicals in the dark room. You load a canister in the dark. That can go wrong. You might have your temperature wrong for your developer. Um, you have to agitate it. You could get air bubbles on your film if you don't agitate it consistently. Mm. Um, so it's very scientific and technical. So, you know, that, that's um, compared to digital um, photography, film photography is, is more of a challenge. And I can understand why it's popular with film students because it's fun. It, it is a fun way. Um, you don't know what you're going to get. And also with Photoshop, everyone loves Photoshop, but they're doing things like burning in and dodging and all those sort of technical terms that are in Photoshop is what we manually did in the darkroom on a, in a tray with a, you know orange safe light. So you, uh, um, so you do it by hand manipulation in, in, in the enlarger. So yeah, it's cute how Photoshop have taken the, the kind of uh, traditional uh, techniques and then they've become icons and kind of techniques that are digital, but they're based on, um, like you say, burning in or dodging. Yeah. And because I'm of that older generation, because I, I knew how to process film, I, find, I found digital a, a very easy transition and also using Photoshop, a much easier transition and also cleaner way of working. You know, the chemicals aren't that wonderful to be uh, in all day. Um, like in a, in a dark room, I would sometimes go into print for an exhibition, for example, and I'm a very meticulous printer. I mean, there's been whole books about how to print to get the nice contrast, you know, if, uh, I preferred black and white. So you have to have nice technical contrast. You have to have no um, scratches or dust. Dust is our enemy. Sometimes you would get dust in your printing or on the negative. You use a blower brush to clean all of that. But inevitably you get spots and um, retouching becomes a big thing. So it, um, it's much more, um, I keep saying technical. It, you have to be much more ordered. 
Mm. Um, what what do you like about black and white? Well, you look at the form and the design of the image. Uh, the color with color that ta color takes away from that. You look at the color, like um, you know, if you've got a um, a group of people, one person's wearing red, your eye goes to the red. So you look at um, with black and white, it's more formalist. You look at the design of the image itself, and that's why I really like black and white, and that's having a resurgence as well. It's, um, mm. Leonard, let's hear yes, more. I want to hear more about where you have come from. Were you uh, always interested in history when you were, say, at school? When I was at school, I certainly was interested in history modern history in particular, as well as a bit of ancient, but I also focused on art. And initially when I went to university, it was a fine arts focus. But then what happened was I became very interested in Australian history as I had a wonderful lecturer by the name of James Waldesey, who's no longer with us. But James would take the mickey out of everything. He would question things in a very odd and peculiar way. And that type of questioning invited me to think about what I was actually looking at and what I wanted to do. Why was he asking questions? Because it wasn't, well, at the time we were studying colonial history and in fact a somewhat conservative history in terms of its Australian historiography compared to now in particular, particularly um, we've, we've had the history wars, but I would say that the history wars are just part of what's actually going on in terms of the development of contemporary Australian history. He would show me documentations and so on that hadn't been looked at. And he was also very supportive of broadening out what he called the net as far as you can in terms of gathering documentation. And that enticed me because, to begin with, my background is German, Ukrainian, Italian, Maltese, Polish. Looking at that type of documentation, Generally speaking, even today, we do not train Australian historians in a language other than English. And when you take a look at what is kept in our archives of memory, that is the libraries and the archives around the country, the vast majority of the collection is in English. So my argument would be, we have a cultural myopia here. We look at it from a British Australian perspective, and that is not in total. Australia's history. So is this what you're talking about? This resonated with you when mm. you were younger yeah. and you thought that's a thing I would like to pursue? Because it identified me as far as I'm concerned. And there was a particular professor who indicated to me, Leonard, is this when you were at um, like an undergraduate university or? And when I was doing postgraduate work. Oh yeah, yeah. okay. Uh, Leonard, really you should be looking at um, British history and British history in regard to Australia forget this wog stuff well instead of that's in terms of becoming a professional Australian historian what I think that particular individual forgot it's <laughs> quite poetic in a way <laughs> but yes was that um, in actual fact because of my background I couldn't do that I couldn't um, I can hear the conviction in your voice. <laughs> I couldn't associate myself with something which I knew was quite false. And so I pursued going into an area, particularly given what Effie had indicated, that during the gold rush period, and that was my postgrad thesis, um, I was looking at New South Wales, and at the time, this is the 1980s, there was an assumption that the pattern in Victoria of the gold rush was duplicated in New South Wales. And when you went into the particular 
areas and the particular engagements between peoples, you saw that no, in actual fact, you can't say that. So what does that mean? What does that mean? What is the pattern in Victoria? Well, the pattern in Victoria is of major rushes that were very swift and then became settled. But in New South Wales, they weren't as swift as what we would like to think they were. And in actual fact, we got quite a massive conglomerate of people from all over the world here and in Victoria. But what I particularly focused on was that we had collective settlements in New South Wales of groups from non-English speaking background. We certainly had it in Victoria, but I saw that there was a predominance of this in New South Wales and particularly in the Hill End uh, region. I was going to Hill End did come to mind. I went there in year nine. Hill End and Sefala. And at Hill End and Sefala, you had a German town, you had a China town. And what do you know? You had a Greek town. And these settlements became quite quite enlarged in terms of family groups being established. And in fact, a Greek town at Hill End Tamburura uh, was the first collective settlement of Greeks in Australia currently that we know of. There was another one in Victoria at Maryborough, which was at Mosquito Flat, but the larger one was here in New South Wales. And here was a situation where you had, whilst that was a collective settlement, you did have attempts by those Greeks who were involved with that settlement in terms of miners um, or in terms of shopkeepers to try and inculcate themselves into the broader Australian society. So some became, for instance, Methodist missionaries. Others uh, jumped up onto the political bandwagon and, and sought to get local, sought to become local representatives, and certainly some did. So, so when, you, when you're collating all this information, historical kind of documentation, had you met Effie? Yes. Yes, she had gone to Greece and had come back, and quite ironically, um, I was shelving books at Fisher Library trying to earn some more crust uh, during the postgraduate years. So Fisher Library being the, the one at Sydney Uni? The one at Sydney University, correct. And I was at the service desk and I had this sense that there was somebody looking at me and I turned around and there was Effie to my surprise because she had been in Europe. And we then went down to Manning Bar, which was... I know Manning Bar. Okay, Sydney University again. And we discussed the work that we were doing. And from then on, we made an agreement. Let's see how far this goes. Let's link my understanding of what was happening in terms of that period and see what else I can find Mm -hmm. in terms of the length of time that Greeks have been in this country. But the other issue is that it's not just simply looking at the Greeks in isolation. It's their interrelationship with others and intermarriage and interrelationships had started earlier. So it's the hybridization that takes place. And then not only were they coming across in terms of their physicality, bringing themselves over, they're also bringing their experiences. And I'll give you an example of that. That's one thing that we're both interested in from the very start. Greeks would come out from the 49 rushes in California. They had experienced the gold rush there because this is part of a global diaspora. And when you travel, you pick up experiences and you tend to apply within the current situation that you're in of the host, the host region, whether or not anything you've experienced can be applied there correctly or can be hybridized. So because of the experience over in California, many of the Greeks realize that, well, gold mining's a um, poor man's lottery. You could strike it rich and become very wealthy. But on the other hand, the vast majority didn't. But because there were very few settlements on the gold fields, the gold fields actually became settled to a degree and some became permanent towns, who was going to supply the equipment? Who was going to supply the food? 
Who is going to supply the cartage and so on? Greeks started setting up shops. Is this the nature of what your PhD was about? It was a master's. Oh, I haven't sorry. done a PhD. <laughs> Not interested in doing a PhD. I'm interested in the work at hand. So you're doing all this really quite focused research on a particular um, kind of area, which is the Greek Greek experience during a particular period of time. And then part of your reading, you discovered um, these other aspects of the Greek diaspora, the Californian experience, they're bringing stuff here. Yes. So what, I mean, I guess it's kind of, it resulted in a thesis or uh, something like... Sorry, do do forgive my ignorance. It did result in a in a thesis, but the the aspect of that thesis was broader than just simply looking at the Greeks itself. It was the interrelationships between people and the economic development and so on, and questioning well, how great was that economic development? What were the pluses and and what were the negatives? And what was the future that had been predicted at that particular point in time? And whether or not it eventuated. That is in terms of the gold fields themselves, because how we became the hub of the world. How did all of these people come together quite successfully and then develop a society? Okay. The results of what we were doing together became exhibitions and books. So we've done numerous books. We've done numerous um, lecture tours, um, international exhibitions to Greece a few times. So, so as you were working as a photographer, what were you doing, Leonard? As okay. A, like, a, how did you earn a crust? Teaching, teaching, um, which I at didn't... university or at high No, school? I was doing some teaching at high schools. Oh, yes. Uh, it wasn't until later that Both I went... Both of you have done the hard yards. Yes, <laughs> yes. But it also gave us the flexibility to actually take time off to do field trips. It was only later that I started doing teaching and lecturing over, over at Macquarie and developing particular, uh, a particular course. Um, but it gave us the flexibility so that we could go around... One of the reasons why we did exhibitions, and most people would refer to what I do as being an applied history, that is an outcome other than a publication, was that, as I said earlier, the the archives of memory didn't have this material. So where was it? It was out there in the private hands what of families. What does that mean, the archives of memory? Uh, uh, libraries and state archives, national archives right. and so on. They did not hold this material. And so we had to generate and become an archive of memory ourselves. And in actual fact, the archive that we have is one of the most nationally significant regarding a particular group. That so in, in other words, you're going out into the community and you're taking photos, you're interviewing people... That kind of thing. Collecting their documentation in terms of, we never keep original documents because we believe that that's a passage that that document has to maintain within the family itself. We never keep original photographs. Again, there's a private journey that has to be undertaken. When we take it out and put it in the public sphere as we do within publications and exhibitions, Effie creates a copy of that. So it then takes up another story within a broader context, whilst also being inclusive of its private meaning within the family. Okay. If I can just say too, that a lot of libraries at that time, when we were starting out, were also interested in collecting information from non-English speaking peoples. And that was one of the things that we, we actually took issue with. There was a, um, was it the State Library had a, a program? Correct. Uh, was it called Why Care? Uh, who care? 
ethnic history, ethnic, why care? Why care? It was their uh, way to stimulate people from non-English speaking backgrounds to donate material to institutions. And of course, with Greek communities that we knew well, they're not going to go to a library. They're not familiar with going to a big library. So, so we you have to go to them. You have to go to them, yeah. which is common common now. People understand that now. But at that time, we actually had to, uh, we presented a paper with a whole lot of libraries and we were saying, this system is not going to work. This is, this is going to work. You have to go out there and physically collect it yourself. And that's what we've been doing ever since. And I think we got uh, respect back from the State Library after being so critical of them for pointing out that, you know, that's not the right approach. So did, when you were working together, did that sort of just happen organically and, and kind of spontaneously or was it, um, how did it? I think organically because, um, you know, our holidays were based around, okay, we'll go to Newcastle, look at the Greeks in Newcastle, this, you know, down the track in between university breaks or I would take a lot of leave without pay, which was, uh, you know, a, another great reason for working at a university so it worked organically we're like we didn't plan to create this huge collection of images which i might add is now a bit of a headache because what do you do with it um so it became a big responsibility because we are we we have images a very important collection and what to do with it in the future is you know that's another topic for another time but it also is a lot of worry for us about what we're going to do with it eventually but we it, it happened organically we wanted to do exhibitions we wanted to do books and this is a topic that we were very um, connected with well as Effie indicated it is a large responsibility when you have a massive collection of historical and contemporary images a massive collection of recorded interviews oral history tapes and a massive collection of copied documents where does this go and we still don't have people who can utilize it in terms of the language, utilize it in terms of having a perspective which is not particular to British Australians, okay? In terms of understanding the development of Greek Australian culture as it has been here, but also to understand that this is just one small parcel because the interaction between the Greek diaspora peoples here and other peoples who have come here is what's important. That is where we will get a fresh perspective on Australian history. Recently, there's been a number of publications um, by academic historians who have said, oh, this is a new history of Australia and we've been inclusive in that. And I've had a look at these particular publications and I don't feel um, being inclusive means that you have a tokenistic Greek Australian, German Australian or whatever um, who is within the public eye as being placed within a particular um, chapter and that's it. So that's a thing that happens. Then. That is as far as I'm concerned. Yes We do not get this overall view of the interactions between different groups and different peoples and a perfect example of that Which we'll probably get to later is the process of Americanization within Australia Most of the general public I would assume tend to think it's our direct relationship with the US but in terms of how we were Americanized in regard to a popular culture, the Greeks certainly played a huge part because the diaspora was not simply Greeks coming from Greece, but Greeks coming from the United States, Canada. Um, they influenced our popular culture and turned our face away from Great Britain towards the US. It wasn't just simply a dialogue of economic benefits in terms of trade. It was far greater than that. And the only way that that was recognized is through the research that Effie and myself had been doing in regard to the Greek cafes and milk bars.
Well, together as a couple, we've been working on this project for over 40 years. Last year marked 40 years. And it's something that we're still passionate about uh, because it's given us our sense of direction um, and our, our personal identity in a way as well. It isn't that we don't argue is possibly a strong word. We discuss the interrelationships between the visual image uh, between what is stated in terms of the interviews and what we find in documentation. And we play around with it. And it's the fact that I think that Effie and myself consider not our egos being in charge, but what we are finding to be more so, because that will be the footprint that we will leave, and hopefully for other people to uh, critically take a look at and see how it can be utilised with, within the future. Um, we've, we've both benefited from our backgrounds, because, as I said, we've both done fine arts. Um, I've, I've done history, Effie has done some, some Greek history, so we can synthesise all that together and utilise those particular skills that we undertook during our university years and now come and look at a new perspective of our past collectively and the potential of the nation's future and viewing it through a different perspective rather than one that we currently have. You're listening to Perspectives in Parryville. When we first started out, we had recognised that there was a history that previously hadn't been looked at closely. Although Hugh Gilchrist, who's an, a former ambassador, Australian ambassador to Greece, had started it. Um, but not as all-encompassing as what we were doing. We also had recognised that there were particular stereotypes. Effie had recognised that there were stereotypes within the visual representation of Greeks, uh, what we called the folkloric stereotype, women in black clothing, uh, uh, the various festivals wearing regional costume, or we had the commercial or business stereotype of the Greek cafe proprietor and milk bar owner. And when we were going around the country and when we were looking at documentations and when we were looking at families across generations, we recognised that there was a huge diversity that hadn't been recognised, the complexity of the Greek diaspora so, here. So when you saw that, did you think have a little self-reflect and think, hang on a minute, like this is something that we need to investigate Correct. further? Yes, it was. We had to try and articulate very clearly that let's not stereotype these people, or let alone others, but go into the details of it. And then we had to give evidence. And the evidence was through the exhibitions originally and through small publications, a couple of academic articles, a couple of popular articles, and then people responded to that and we started getting more information. And I'll say too that the Cafe book was our third major book. Our earlier books, to um, confirm what Leonard was saying, was was more about the history. Um, the first one was called Images of Home. It looked at people that went back to Greece. What is home? People that were um, uh, like Australian citizens but had gone back to live in Greece. Or we looked at the effects of migration on, Greek itself, on Greece itself. You know, coming to Australia is not just a one-way street. People left their villages. They've, some towns became ghost towns because they came to Australia and they thought they would only come for a short period, make some money and go back. And for a lot of people that didn't happen. Um, we would go back and find these deserted villages and you'd go inside and there'd be photographs of from Australia 
sent to them there in Greece. Come, you can work here, there, whatever, the great opportunities, but many never managed to go back. So these houses had collapsed. And so we tried to look at the historical aspect of it more so than promoting the cafe at like the stereotypes so, so what did to start you do? off like, with. What's a typical situation where you kind of meet a family or you meet an individual, you go out there, you've got your camera gear in a bag, you've got your, your pen and uh, notepad or maybe a recorder? What, how well, did, how well, does as, it work? Well, as you know, you can't... <laughs> We're experiencing can't, a similar need, thing right yeah, now. You can't turn up and expect someone to open up to you unless you know them a little bit and chat with them and find out something about them. They're not going to give you information um, if, if they don't know what your agenda is or what, what you plan to do with it. So, you know, I think we're very honest people that, you know, we weren't going to make money out of their story. We weren't going to on sell it. We weren't going to do anything detrimental, which has happened to people before. They weren't, um, we didn't want to keep their historical images. We only wanted a copy of them. So there was full disclosure of what we expected from them and this is what we were going to do with it. We were putting it, um, put it in a book or an exhibition. So we we gained trust and um, one of the things early on was I befriended a, um, a, a journalist in one of the Greek newspapers that wrote the English section and she always supported the work that we did. So whenever we had an exhibition or something coming up, Joan Massaris would always promote where Leonard and Effie were going to oh, next. So that's got the word out in the community. Yeah. People would yeah. kind of recognise, oh, there's these people that are... So Leonard and Effie, up. or Effie and Leonard, were yeah. is what we became known as. And it was a great way to... Um, one of the things we didn't want to do is just focus on our immediate family. You don't do that. You had to th um, try and get a diversity of opinions and experiences. So th that was the best way to do it. Um, these, these are all like... Queensland, New South Wales, we've, like we, everywhere. We got in the car and we've driven around the country. That, As we said earlier about um, gaining trust and collections, you've got to go out there and tell people what, what you wanted to do. And so they, there, there's some even in, um, I went to Egypt, Alexandria in Egypt, um, some of the Are images there. Are cafes in Alexandria in Egypt? Well, yes. And there oh, were many. And there were many. Wow. So, um, so it's a sort of a global... Um, aspect of it but you've got to go there and collect it yourself and the same with the history around the country um, we've we found out regionally that um, you know Ithacans for example you know from the island of Ithaca settled in Newcastle they also settled in in Melbourne more so different regional people settled in different areas throughout Greece uh, throughout Australia and we found that out just by physically going there and finding out um, one of the aspects that came out very clearly to me was this the concept that it's a history of ideas and that ideas that came here and then meshed with First Nations people were varied in terms of economic development, in terms of political development, in terms of socio-cultural development and so on. And that this became, as Effie said, a global history because you do have diaspora peoples. They are migratory peoples. They bring their experiences and they find out what works. So what are, uh, what are the things that they, they, they told you that worked for them that are uh, kind of like a everyday language type of version? Well, many people hopefully may be aware now of the huge impact that Greeks had with the sea and various articles that we've written in terms of Greeks and Greeks 
Greeks, Greek currents in Australian waters. I like Greek uh, seafood. Yeah. <laughs> uh, it's not just the seafood. In terms of pearling, it was... Oh, okay. Okay. In terms of cultured pearl, it was developed by a Greek Australian by the name of uh, Dennis George. Um, he developed cultured pearls here. It was then later taken on by the Paspales and the Calices. In terms of the seafood industry, in terms of the markets, the markets are controlled by Greeks to a large extent and have been traditionally for a long period of time. Um, in terms of mining, we mentioned miners during the gold rushes. Well, that continued. That continued and you had miners at Groot Island, for instance, all around the country, even on the um, uh, west coast of Tasmania. Greeks have been involved in mining and utilising their skills. Now, the tobacco industry, although it's no longer with us for good reasons, that was developed by Greeks, uh, particularly at Manjimup in Western Australia and at in Queensland, and I've forgotten the name of the town. Um, you've Opal mining, <laughs> Cooper Pedy, during the 1980s, the largest uh, Greek community space that we saw in the country then was at Cooper Pedy of all places. So, so during this process, was there a lot of, um, like, unexpected information that is kind of bubbling up or yep. is it stuff that you kind of knew already or we didn't know it already yeah. it hadn't been published and um hugh gilchrist did spend his life documenting um from a, a more a, um history a, from a, above history from above because that was he, uh, he was an ex-ambassador so he had the he had access to information too from um libraries and um consular um uh, vehicles but um we looked at it as people on the ground so we we were young too we were we sort of infiltrated it f as young historians going around you? the country the we time. started doing it we were 25 26 in our late 20s and so now we're in our mid 60s, 60s. <laughs> there was another historian by the name of michael tunis who wrote a phd on greek communities around australia his perspective was from the left wing um, that was also incredibly helpful to us, and we matured as far as I'm concerned. As far as I'm concerned, with the background provided by Hugh Gilchrist and provided by Michael Tunis. Um, but when they were writing, um, they weren't popular histories. They were not introduced into the broader span of Australian historical works. They were still seen as niche or ghetto histories. And one of the things that we tried to do is to say, hey, look. Australia's actually got a global history, what Effie referred to earlier, that whilst it was appropriate for Australian historians to go back to Britain and look at documents, had anyone considered, well, the variety of groups that are here, what about what's happening back there in the land that they came from? And so you, there was a knock-on effect in terms of, well, how had Greece dealt with massive loss of population? What had chain migration how, created how over there? They? They, they lost population. Ghost the, towns. Ghost towns were created. And so, like on Kithra, for example, the island of Kithra, where there's more Kitherians, far more Kitherians here in Australia than on the island uh, itself, or even on Castellotis, there are a lot more Kazis here. Um, you, you, you didn't have any young people to till the land, so you got massive erosion, you got um, deserted industry stopped, the young people had left, you had women living on their own because, um, you know, they didn't have any men to marry them. So it's, it was catastrophic in a way during that um early migration period for Greece itself. And and then, like, if you've gone out and you're talking to all these people um, and recording their stories, what, what do you do then as part of your process? Do you do it all in little bits and pieces or do you gather a whole heap of stuff and then bring it back and then spend the next six months 
going through and compiling it or how does it work? Well, it had to fit in within work commitments. So our weekends were always busy doing project work. Um, you know, it takes a lot of time and we always had a professional slant on it. Being a photographer, it had to be the best quality. Being a historian, it had to be we all our interviews were on cassette tape. We didn't want to do anything Before wrong. Digital. We didn't misquote people. We didn't want to do... We, it had to be a professional um, level. To, to get acceptance and to, and to have credibility. So when you get back and you press play on your recordings, what are you listening out for? Like how do you know? It depends what exhibition or what publication we're putting together. For instance, with In Their Own Image Greek Australians, it started off as a community exhibition and travelled for a number of years around the country and then was taken up by the State Library of New South Wales and became a quite a large exhibition within itself and funded by the... Um, Visions of Australia. We were looking at, we broke that up into particular sections. So we had a section that dealt with the early arrivals. We had another section that dealt with um, identity. We had another section that dealt with migration and remigration. And we had a, a, third, uh, a last section that dealt with Greece itself because to have an understanding of what we're talking about, you've got to understand the, uh, the cultural and political environs that these individuals and groups came from. And it meshed it all together very, very successfully, um, I'm, I'm pleased to say. And then that produced our first major book. Uh, sorry, second major mm -hmm. book. But prior to that, Effie had indicated images of home, this idea of identity, what is home, the confusion that arose, the splitting and fragmenting of families, the fragmenting of Greece itself. Australia certainly benefited, but forgot about what was the residue overseas. And then linking it up with those that had settled here, well, what were the pluses and minuses in terms of their experiences of Australia and why they decided to settle, why they decided that this was going to be the country for themselves and for their future generations. In contrast to those who went back, the twilight migrants, some go backwards and forwards, constantly not being able to settle, or those who went back permanently. And as I said, it did fragment families. These were stories that were unheard of in regard to this particular group. Um, and also the interrelationships between the Greeks and, and other peoples, particularly First Nations peoples, for instance. In the northwest of, of Australia, there was a working relationship between First Nations and Greeks and Maltese and Italian. And what took place between them then? Certainly there was some intermarriage and interrelationships that took place, but they bonded together because they were in the lower sections of the society, not the upper. And it really created a sense of camaraderie. Plus, we had Greeks learning from First Nations people. The Barramundi, for instance, okay? The Heritos family went Barramundi fishing. This is during the 1950s with, in, with First Nations people in the Northern Territory. Barramundi wasn't on our palette then, no way. Um, they then decided to use those fishing techniques and they thought, okay, let's take a pun. Let's see whether or not barramundi will be accepted for the 1956 Olympics menu, and it was. And from then on, it took off, okay? A crocodile hunting for um, skins and so on. They learnt the techniques of First Nations people up there in terms of how you go about this. And indeed, um, the capturing of crocodiles for Chevelle's film, Jeddah, was through the Heritoses and with Indigenous Australians working together. Those type of relationships were um, forged because of the camaraderie as 
because they were on the same strata of society at that stage. Um, Our history is a, a human personal history and I think people get that. People like, it's like you're being invited to someone's home because the photographs are very open um, and then they tell you personal things which they don't mind like that. So you go into someone's living room and they'll tell you a little bit about their life. And people love, like you're being a bit of a voyeur. You're looking about at someone's life and what is it about their life. Obviously in a book we and in an exhibition, you only put in a small section. Our interview tapes are about an hour or half an hour, depending on what we aiming to get out of um, the interview. But often for a book, you'll have a small snippet that fits into the thesis of the of the section that you're writing about. Did you have a set set um, of of kind of questions that you'd bring, or you'd just see how the conversation went, or it's, how? It's how the conversation goes, and it's what experiences they bring to it, and often is directed by them. Sometimes we might um, hauntingly familiar. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah, you can't have a formula. It won't work with a formula. You've got to go, and that's what's exciting about it. You, you don't know about the person, but you want to find something out, and let you know. Let's let's see what happens. There isn't a formula, but structurally during the interview, there are what we call introductory identification questions, and then after that, we start off with the first member to migrate. And then you allow yourself, as what you're doing now, to go off on tangents, but always bearing in mind to bring them back so that you have a thread that runs through the entire process. And that will guide you as when you then come to utilise the uh, material. Um, but Effie's quite correct. This is, these are very personal histories and we don't aim to be sensationalistic. We're not interested in revealing uh, tragic truths, um, some of which uh, we have kept at, at bay. Obviously, we want to maintain a relationship with individuals and uh, with families, and we're there to give a broad brush, but put in particulars that are not going to affect our relationship or the interrelationship between peoples um, in terms well, of family members. Sometimes it's been the first time that someone's had the opportunity to be interviewed about their life in Australia. And often their children or their grandchildren later on will find out that we had done an interview with them. Oh, can we hear it? Can we see it? Um, uh, there are issues there because we do have release forms and some people do not want particular aspects released. And again, if you mentioned the word trust, it's very big in terms of what we do. We're not in this uh, in terms of a career. We're in this because our passion identifies with our own identities and we certainly want to make a statement in regard to the broader nature of the Australian historical palette rather than just simply the myopia that currently exists. And that's why our project works. We do it because we want to do it, we're passionate about it. If we were paid to do it, I don't think we'd have the same passion towards it. Certainly we'd love to get funding to help us uh, do things along the way, but um, it comes from um, the love of doing it really. And the fact that it's been missing in Australian history and it, 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 we're just filling a gap. You're listening to Perspectives in Parryville. Two points. First point dealing with the Greek cafe, the book and the exhibition. And I have touched on this earlier. What we tried to do there, and remember, the Greek cafe and milk bar was a stereotype. But no one had asked the question, well, why? Why? And how did it become a, a stereotype? How did... 
we recognised that those people behind the counter was they were the first point of contact between British Australians and Greek Australians. They were the face. People would not necessarily go down mines or go off into the farms and take a look at those Greek Australians who were working there. And, and early on, of course, we didn't have your, your Greek doctors, your Greek accountants and so on, which we have now, and your Greek politicians en masse. Why did it become so popular? Well, it was a part of the process we discovered of Americanization. When we were interviewing those who owned cafes and milk bars, they started referring to the American style the Americanisms that were coming in, the relationship between these cafes and cinemas, the relationship between rock and roll, the relationship with the architecture. But can I add, Leonard, uh, the first point was we saw a photograph. Um, so it's the idea for this uh, Americanization aspect, which is really important, came from a photograph we had from one of the families that, were, that we copied. It was called the Canberra Cafe, um, which up. is in there. And it had in one of the central windows American uh, confectionery. American confectionery and ice cream. And we thought, why is, why is that so important? Why is that so important? So then we went back and we started looking at other images. And this became quite pronounced. This seemed to be something which hadn't previously been recognised. It struck a chord. You it did, it did. Did you feel it or did you kind of intellectually analyse it or you kind of was on your list of things to look out for? How did it... Well, what we do, we do our due diligence. What had actually been, had there been anything written on the Greek cafes and milk bars? And what do you know? Well, um, Michael Simmons, who wrote the seminal publication, um, One Continuous Picnic on Australian Eating Habits, had spent only three lines on the Greek cafe and that was it. Oh, I see. I found that oh, if he's found the Well, that's not me. the exact one, but no, there's but a lot of images there that emphasize the Americanism. In, era, in 1908, and on the, clearly on the front window is refreshment rooms, the latest American drinks. Mm, correct. And what they were referring to was the soda fountain. And soda fountains were originally in pharmacies. Mm. And... But that was the back service soda fountain. The front service, which was on the front counter, was there for commercial reasons. You engage with people. And Greeks are great raconteurs. They love discussing things. I'm generalising here. But that allowed the Greeks to become involved within the local communities. But it also brought in American technology and this wonder. And the soda fountain was not just simply a, air, a, a gas-rated drink it was the entire makeup of it in terms of you had the cylinder with the light above and occasionally the light would spin and you had stained glass um, uh, stained glass above the light itself, which means it'd be reflective. The back, the back bar was full of mirrors and full of these bottles with silver or gold tops that had the essences. And so the noise and the light, it became the original light fantastic for the Americans, so even though the light fantastic refers, it. well, and the essences, they were organic essences. When he opened the bottle, it waft out. And this became a magical wonder for British Australians. Even they, in the smallest country town. Well, it, it became a contrast. The, Imagine mm. like a hot, dusty day, and then you mm. walk in and you see what you've just mm. described. It would be mm. breathtaking. And bear in mind, to have this operating, you have to have electricity, you have to have a generator. The first generators in these towns that we use commercially were therefore had to be had to be brought in by the Greeks. Mm. So they were introducing aspects of America. It was not just simply the soda fountain. There was also American confectionery, which was incredibly sweet compared 
compared to the confectionery that, that we had here previously. Milk chocolate, which was created in Central Europe but commercialised in the United States, people would know Hershey's, for instance. The, the, the Greeks brought it out here. The idea of packaging something. You don't just simply, as many of us would be familiar in the 60s, a little paper bag and you put your lollies in there. What the Greeks were doing were wrapping it up in boxes, metal boxes, um, cardboard boxes, great designs on them. Some people would remember here in New South Wales, the Paragon over at, K at Katoomba. They're packaging, they're now collector's items. So this idea of wonder, this idea of fantasy and food connecting one another from the United States because we had Greeks coming out from the US and because of the extended families, there was a relationship in terms of communication, okay? In terms of what was going on. What do you call that phenomenon? You said that like a cultural kind of communication or how does it, like is there a particular? Well, it's a transference and then a transformation and then a hybridization. That's the process that's actually involved in terms of bringing these ideas and then seeing what works, seeing how you can amalgamate it with what exists here. So Leonard's talking now about the soda drinks and the soda fountain and all of that. Then 1932, we had the first global milk bar. And just to give you an idea of numbers, after Mick Adams, Greek name Joachim Tablaridis, he, um, during the um, Depression, 1932, 1932 yeah. um, earlier he'd gone to America. He had a, he had a, um, a cafe in, in the Haymarket. And during the Depression, he goes to visit his relatives in America, and that's where he saw the drugstore soda fountain, soda parlor. And he came back and he thought, oh, the um, it, it's costly having, having um, waiters and waitresses. I will do something like that, where you just go to the bar and order them, get the milkshake yourself at the bar. Anyway, he created a global phenomenon um, because with the numbers, he, he established the initial one in 1932 in Martin Place. Within a year, there were 4,000 of them around Australia. This gives you the numbers at how phenomenal this um, idea was. And it was an amalgamation between the idea of having what I referred to as Hamilton Beach milkshake makers. The milkshake wasn't popular in the United States. It didn't boom until the 1950s. But he brought this milkshake, his electronic milkshake mixer there is, out uh, here. Uh, there yes. on the shelf. I can see We it. buy them from eBay. <laughs> he, he brought them out here en masse and he got rid of table service, as Effie said. He got rid of food items and so on. And he just focused on the milkshake primarily and then, of course, the sodas, which were still popular. But milkshakes were not popular in the States because you had the drugstore soda parlour. They certainly did have milkshakes, but they weren't sold en masse as compared to when Adams focused on it here. So his outlet became the first modern milk bar, and it was a concept, as Effie said. It went global. It, it went to Europe. It went to England. It went to South America. It went to various islands in the South Pacific. Um, there was and that's when milk was considered a, um, a health drink, and a, um, it was good for you. Even um, there are articles that we found in the press how Mick Adams created what he called the bootlegger punch, which had a, a, a hint of rum essence. Hotel, <laughs> hoteliers were complaining at that time, if you look up newspaper in, in during that period, that men were going to drink the, um, the bootlegger um, milkshake because uh, it was cheaper. And if I could make the point of hybridisation, the Milk Bar emphasises this in terms of the relationship between what Mick Adams saw with the drugstore soda parlours in the US and then his understanding, his recollection of back in Greece with a 
specialized shop that only sold milk products, Galactopolio. So he thought, okay, depression, I've got to limit what I can provide if I can focus on one particular product and that being milk because it's seen as a health food, I might be onto something. Well, he certainly was. So eventually, because his milk bar was mostly milkshakes, in country towns it was still the cafe, but they incorporated the milk bar within the, the milkshakes within the, within the cafe because you couldn't, uh, you had to have a, a diverse menu to cater for the, yeah, the local needs. It wouldn't be viable just to have that yeah. one item. It's like how you have juice bars now, you know, they, they took off. It's something similar to what he had done. And it was all, he was lucky, like milk was healthy at the time. He had everything on uh, supporting what he did. He was also and a great promoter. But if I could go back to Greek cafes, where we were talking about the food items and the technology, there was also the relationship with architecture. Streamline Modern, which was curvilinear, emphasised this idea of speed. Um, it was the Greek shop fitters who incorporated that into these Greek institutions. Previously, we had European Art Deco, which was angular, um, following the discoveries of uh, Lord um, uh, Carter and Lord Carnarvon in uh, Tutankhamun's oh, yeah, tomb, right? That, that Very angular. The Americans, in terms of the Californian Streamline Modern, we got that through the Greek cafes. And then we had picture theatres because Greeks realised the relationship between food and fantasy that had started with the soda fountain. They started taking on picture theatres and then designing in the, in the Art Deco Streamline Modern. So you had the food items, the picture theatres, we still have that today. And in actual fact, prior to the late 1950s, the second largest individual picture theatre operator was a Greek um, by the name of Kouvelis, J.K. Kouvelis, and he eventually sold to, um, oh, what was the large company? Was it Hoyts? Hoyts, yeah. And yeah, could I say too that all, all the images that you see there were ones that we had gone around to people's homes to collect. So the history came together um, through what we collected on our, on our trips. So no. not through public, in, not through um, public institutions. They didn't really have these images. This is something totally new. Mark, I want to ask you a question. How did rock and roll get here? Uh, I don't know. But tell me what you think. Uh, vinyl records? Or? Oh yeah. Well, yes. I don't know. <laughs> well, I go back to the Greek cafe and the Greek milk bar and the bodgies and the widgies. And the it, jukebox. And the jukebox. It was the Greeks that en masse, again, food and fantasy recognised, particularly during, um, just prior to the war and then during the war, that music was part of the component they should be selling. So originally during the war there was swing music and there was jazz, but then after the war they introduced rock and roll and rock and roll was heard in these Greek-run institutions well before its acceptance on public radio. But what's really funny there and some of the stories are in the book was um, people would introduce the jukebox, but then that, that brought in a certain, the younger, younger uh, rock and roll type people and the bodgies and the widgies, as Leonard said. I don't know what bodgies and widgies are. Okay, um, bodgies and widgies, they're a youth culture. Uh, they wore a particular type of, in inverted commas, uniform with um, stovepipe jeans, for instance, radical hairstyles, tight-fitting shirts Think and of so the fonds in Happy yeah. Days. Yeah. So it brought that sort of people to the family-run cafes. So some people talk about dad brought in the jukebox, but then it, we lost the families. So, you know, the jukebox goes back to the shop and we... Um, and the bodgies you know. are the male version, the widgies are the female version. And then they would introduce them. Youth culture had started to acquire disposable income. 
okay? Which means that they then inculcated the further development of their particular cultural forms. So in terms of all these photographs and g capturing, I guess, g generating, what, what, what do you, how do you describe it? All this sort of information that's in people's hearts and minds, and then you're going out and capturing it and you're putting it into an exhibition or a book. I mean, and this isn't a trick question, but what's the value in doing that for a community and for an audience? It's their past. It's their past. It's their and it's their future. Their acknowledgement that this is what they've contributed to this country, which has been largely ignored. You're finding a little piece of yourself that you didn't realise was was there. This isn't a book simply for uh, Greek Australians. In fact, people think, oh, this is about Greek cafes. It's not. It's about how particular ideas came in and transformed our society. It's actually about all of us. And one of the things that I like to say is every time you drink a Coke, every time you go to the cinema, every time you have a milk chocolate, every time you see an Art Deco building, well, think about how it all got there. It was through the Greek diaspora and what they brought over and then harmonised within the society that they found became part of each of us in a little way. And that's important. We all have to identify. And once we know that our identity is not limited, that it's broader than what we think on a community, societal, cultural level, it enhances us. It can't do more, but it does do that. And that book has done that, and it's we've just had a new re, uh, print run because it has uh, touched a chord nationally as well. There are two new publications, and there's a new exhibition that's coming out. Effie's working on a book called um, Father Nectaris's Soup Kitchen, which is looking at a Orthodox priest, but looking at his humanitarian value in terms of feeding those who are not as well off as you and I. And there's another work. Uh, exhibition and book that Effie's working on with um, Helen Vatsikopoulos, a former journalist with SBS and the ABC, and that's called Binding Threads, and that's significant, and I'll give you my perspective if I can. Binding Threads places individuals who have some Hellenic background into regional costumes, but what's more important is that these people are part of the hybridization. They may have also Vietnamese, First Nations background and so on. But So there's a multiplicity of identities and there's a multiplicity of memories and there's a multiplicity of losses. For instance, a Greek mm. there are two Greek separate girls who are also First Nations. And so both sides of that cultural divide have experienced loss in a major way in terms of the invasion of Cyprus in 74 and of course the invasion in terms of First Nations. But they have also presented themselves within their Hellenic background in a very positive way but recognising that there are multiplicity of things. We all are multiplicity of, of particular identities. We're fathers, brothers, sisters, cousins. Um, we are academics, we are builders, bricklayers but also culturally we're made up of a huge variety of backgrounds which we can choose to identify and respect or choose to negate. And I think that if we negate it, we're the poorer for it. So clearly you are very motivated mm. over many, many years mm. and very focused. And I mean, mm. clearly also there's a, a nice productive collaboration mm. going mm. on. What's the, what's the underlying driving factor of, you know, what do you get out of it? What to, what's the the purpose of this sort of, of even like recording history? 
I think we get out of it more than what we put into it because it is, as I said earlier, it's become our own personal identity and it it, it just um, uh, reinforces that. To know what we do not know and with the aim also of knowing that we will not know it all to begin with. That there's always a question, and that's one of the most important things. You've got to keep asking questions, questions, questions. If you stop asking questions, as far as I'm concerned, you will be in that myopic state that I referred that I referred to earlier. And in the last few years, I think when after we turned 60, we said to ourselves, "We've got 10 years. We've got this 10-year plan," and that's why we're hugely motivated. Like last year, we had uh, two exhibitions, and we've just done the new book. So we're very motivated because I think um, this is our opportunity to, if we can't complain about things in, in Australian society, in Australian history, if we, do, if we don't try and, and fix what we think are problems or neglect in an aspect um, that's important to us. And dare I say, even though we do produce academic articles in journals, we produce these major publications from the, for the broader appeal of the public because we feel that it's not just simply a conversation between one academic or one researcher and another. It's a conversation that we have to have with the broader Australian populace, which is very important as far as we're concerned. If we're going to move forward as a nation which recognises the the diversity from First Nations to the contemporary situation, it will benefit us politically, it'll benefit us economically, it'll benefit us in terms of our our social cultural values. I see big pluses. the latest project is, is a, a new book that's just come out called 40 Photographs, A Year at a Time. During the COVID period, I was able to use that time to go through our uh, archive and choose an image that was significant to me and significant to um, uh, the people that I think I met um, and, and looked at uh, what it was about that image that stood out for me now, 40 years later, looking back, one photo a year was a real challenge. Some years I had hundreds, some years not so many. How did you, so you have many. a little criteria? The, the, the criteria was how I saw it today. And during the COVID period, all of us were sort of in our own little bubble doing our own little projects. One of the years, for example, I'd gone to the British Museum and I saw the, um, the Parthenon marbles. And that's become very topical for lots of people here. Every day you'll read in the paper, British is, um, you know, we're getting them, we're not getting, giving them back or whatever. That's an important issue that many years after, I think that I'd gone to London in 2012. So that photo stood out for me, visiting those um, Parthenon marbles, because it's so topical now. So in this book, where I choose a photo per year, uh, I was able to reflect on the importance of the significance of these Greek, you know, Greece wants these marbles back now. And there's all the political um, issues and everything else related to that. So I guess I like it because it's um, there's an object, but then it's within a cultural context, but then it involves you, but then there's this whole big delightful concept of time as well, revisiting something. So it's sort of like the object doesn't exist absolutely. It's kind of like different perspectives have emerged over the years and then... It's kind of, well, I guess I'm assuming that's the chosen one for that year. It's significant. It's significant. Sometimes time makes things significant. What we look at today may not have been important to me as a 
uh, as a young woman. Like the first photograph is my two parents, my parents together in the fish shop we had in 1982. 1983 is a photograph of my mother at the cemetery because my father had just passed away. So big life events that were important to me, but not just to me because other people can relate to the fact that I am open about life death experiences that resonate with everyone's life. And the next photograph after that is exhumations taking place in Greece in Effie's village where the bones of the deceased after three or four years are taken up and then washed by relatives, bundled and then put into an ossuary. So Effie's reflecting back on all of these but they have resonance not just simply with her but also with the broader Greek Australian community and they should have resonance with the Australian community in terms of this is now actually an aspect that is common in terms of how they should perceive Australians as having this such a, a great diversity in terms of experiences and backgrounds. And Effie has also placed herself and us within the context of the book by sharing her thoughts, but also there are personal photographs of us as a family, for instance, within that, in terms of what things we had to do during a particular year in, a, in regard to the project and balancing off family life. And we all experience these things. It, the work itself reminds me of Fermor's publications where he travelled from the Horn of Holland right through to Constantinople and in later life he wrote a number of volumes about that. So we have the young Fermor but then we have the older Fermor with the knowledge of hindsight looking back. And that's what Effie's done within this. So we have a dialogue between the past and the present. And we also have the understanding of the research that's gone in in regards to the interviews that were undertaken associated with the images originally. And it's all coming together. So you do have a multiplicity of perspectives. What's the, what's the point? Why did you do this 40, um, 40 photographs? Or Sorry, I forgot the name of the... A year at a time. A year at a time. What was the... What were you, it's what my career in a book. It's my whole, it's our whole perspective in a book. Um, people that we like, people that we don't like, events that have um, huge events, little events, uh, people that are amazing, people that have done uh, uh, wonderful things. Uh, there was one person there that was, a, was called the Australian of the Decade, a Greek Australian of the Decade. He used vitamin C to help Indigenous, so Dr. Uh, Archie Kalokerinos, who developed vitamin C helping uh, Indigenous young people. So like huge life events that have impacted on me and are important. And what, what do you think when people pick up the book or, you know, and they're engaging, you kind of um, brought it up a little bit a few minutes ago, but I guess what's, what is going to resonate with them, do you think, this sort of, you know, I guess they're, they're pretty big themes, I suppose, even though it's your personal experience, but the fact that it's in a book and then, or, you know. Well, people will relate to it because they will have, have experienced a lot of the uh, uh uh, events within the book or have known some of the people that are in the book? Well I agree with Effie, people will, it will resonate not just simply with Greeks because it touches on a variety of currents, um, currents and riptides within our society that have pulled us apart, brought us back together again and that we all have to swim through and we have to make decisions in regard to what things do we accept, what things don't, don't we accept. And this book flows with those currents across time from 1982 through to the present on a broad perspective, but also on a very personal perspective regarding those individuals or those groups that Effie have photographed. But then there's also ourselves as individuals, as, as real people. We're part of that story. 
And we've allowed people to enter this because they will recognize that personal aspect, but that also recognize the events that are projected on this particular canvas as you go through the pages. Well, I personally believe that the work will outlive us and that it should be critically looked at. And it's a footprint in terms of the direction that we've gone in, but others can look at that footprint and then say, well, okay, let's have a look in a different direction and see where this material will take us if we look at it from that perspective or this perspective. So we're part of a process, an ongoing process of appraisal, um, criticism and so on to see what we were, what we are and what we can become. Our friend Lex Marinos, who you may know, has once said, um, every community needs an Effie and a Leonard to do what they've done with the Greek community to all communities. And I, I think I like to finish on that because I think you need people that are interested in recording, documenting and preserving for future generations. So the kids and the kids can conceive this is what it was like. And this is what mattered. In this episode, I chatted with Effie Alexakis, a documentary photographer, and Leonard Yanashevsky, a socio-cultural historian. You can find more about this episode in the show notes, including links to Effie and Leonard's various publications, such as Greek Cafes and Milk Bars of Australia, and 40 Photographs a Year at a Time. Thank you for listening to Perspectives in Parryville.